7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer once more. Father, we thank you that you are good and that you are faithful. Father, as we delve into this passage together, may it remind us of your faithfulness in our lives and the work that you are doing in our lives. So, Father, speak to us, encourage us, rebuke us if needed. Thank you once again for this time, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. It's being able to reconnect with uh, family members and friends. And it's definitely good to see some of you, college students, who are visiting us for Thanksgiving. You know, my wife and I, with Maya, we made a quick trip to Northern Virginia, uh, visiting my brother and sister-in-law. And now that my parents recently moved out of this state, um, Virginia feels like it's my home now. Uh, But it was good to be able to spend some time with them and got stuffed And I feel like I still haven't digested all the food uh, that I ate. You know, I've been actually under the weather for for the past uh, few days. So if I sound weird, I I humbly ask that you bear with me uh, throughout this message. You know, this morning, I mean, I'm sorry, this afternoon, uh, as we delve into this passage together, I would like for us to consider uh, the following three points which have been provided for you in in your sermon instrument. The danger of living by sight and not by faith. And number two, when God takes us through the wilderness. And number three, the rock of ages. Let's jump right into the first point, which is the danger of living by sight and not by faith. You know, at this point in our passage, the Israelites have been journeying through the wilderness for several months under the leadership of Moses since leaving Egypt. I mean, life in Egypt was not easy for the Israelites. I mean, they were oppressed for almost, for more than 400 years, and, and they were slaves to, to Pharaoh. So it was, life wasn't easy. But life is just, life is just as challenging um, as they're going through this wilderness journey because of their harsh surroundings. It was uncomfortable, it's hot, and they had to constantly depend on God to provide for their everyday needs. And to make matters worse, they couldn't settle down in one place. They were constantly undergo. In this passage, we find the people of Israel grumbling. 
The question is why. We are told in verses 23 that they are grumbling, they are complaining because they don't have water to drink. And this is a serious matter, especially if you are in the middle of a desert. It's without water, you will not be able to survive. And rightfully so, the people of Israel, they are, they are bringing this charge against God because they're disappointed, they're frustrated, and they are furious because of what is happening. It's like, not again. We don't have water to drink. What are we going to do now? Are we going to be able to survive? Where is God? Is he going to come through again for us and provide for us drinking water? There are many questions, but not many answers. You know, in their anger and frustration, they turn to Moses and quarrel with him. And on the surface level, it just looks like they're arguing with Moses, right? Venting their frustrations at Moses and voicing their concerns at Moses. But there's something much more happening here, and there are deeper implications here. Their actions actually reveal what is really going on in their hearts. The Hebrew word for quarrel here has a specific legal connotation. This word literally means to bring a lawsuit against. So in this passage, what we see is that there is an unfolding legal drama happening here in the desert courtroom of Massa and Meribah. As we will see in verses 2 and 3, the charge will be presented. As we will see in verse 4, the verdict will be rendered. And as we will see in verses 5 and 6, the sentence will be executed. Who are the plaintiffs? Who are the ones bringing this charge? The people of Israel. Who is the defendant? Moses. But he, he, he happens to represent God himself. Verses 23. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So what is happening here is that the Israelites, because they're angry, because they're frustrated, because they're disappointed, they're, bring, they're filing a lawsuit against against Moses. But in doing so, they're actually bringing a lawsuit against God himself. And here in the desert courtroom of Massa and Meribah, the Israelites are putting God on trial. They're putting God on trial. Why? Because they feel as if God has abandoned them. There's no water to drink. There's an immediate need, and they're not so sure if God's going to come through again and whether God is going to provide water for them. So they are charging God with covenant unfaithfulness. And their frustrations are mentioned again in in verse 7, right? Is the Lord among us or not? God, are you with us? Are you for us? We don't have water to drink. We're going to perish here if you do not intervene and give us water to drink. But you know what the crazy thing is? Up until this point in their journey, God has been faithful to them, so faithful to them. But because of this problem at hand, because they got so caught up with their immediate need, they failed to see all the things. They failed to remember all the things that God had done for them up until this point 
in their wilderness journey. You know, let's go back and retrace how God has remained faithful to them since bringing them out of Egypt. And I would like to draw your attention to, to, the, the, to the very details as to how God has been leading them, protecting them, and providing for all of their needs since bringing them out of Egypt. If you look at Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, God spoke these words of promise and deliverance to the people of Israel through Moses. I'm the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to, you, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give to you for a possession. I am the Lord. He has reminded them by giving them these words of promise and deliverance that, that I will be your God and you will be my people. I will deliver you and I will lead you into this promised land. God uttered these words of hope, promise, and deliverance. And the Israelites, they were actually there when God revealed his mighty acts, his awesome power through the ten plagues. And the ten plagues were the visible manifestations of how awesome God is and his mighty power. And they were there where they witnessed the ten plagues and how God used the ten plagues to, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And as they were journeying towards the promised land, they also saw and witnessed the pillars of cloud by day and the pillars of fire by night. And these were visible manifestations of God's presence, that God was among them leading them through this journey. They were there, and they saw these pillars of cloud by day and fire by night. Remember when they got to the Red Sea? They felt hopeless and stuck, dejected. There was a Red Sea in front of them, and then there were the, the ensuing Egyptians behind them, and they didn't know what to do. But we all know what happened. God parted the Red Sea for them to cross over to the other side. And as God parted the Red Sea, this dry ground appeared so that they could cross over. And the ensuing Egyptians, they all perished in the Red Sea. They witnessed that. They saw that with their very own eyes. And they were so moved at, at the way that God has worked for them, bringing salvation to them, that if you look at Exodus chapter 15, they, they sang about this victory and deliverance. And I'm willing to bet after crossing the Red Sea, as they were marching towards the Red Sea, marching towards the promised land, that they were singing the song of victory and deliverance, which is mentioned in Exodus chapter 15. If you look at Exodus chapter 16, they were thirsty. They didn't have water to drink, but God made bitter water sweet so that they can drink and sustain themselves. Exodus chapter 16, which is not very far from where we are, God provided bread for them to eat, manna from heaven. I mean, as you can see, God has been leading them through the wilderness, protecting them and providing for all of their needs and being faithful to them. And they were witnesses to all these great acts of God. You know, they had personally witnessed God's power and his mighty acts of deliverance. They had personally experienced God's provision. I mean, the water to drink and bread to eat, these were tangible expressions of God's faithfulness. They saw, they tasted, they, they touched, and they ate, and they drank. They were witnesses. 
But did you know that as they were leaving Egypt, God made sure that they, they didn't leave empty-handed? Exodus chapter 12, verses 35 through 36, this is what he tells us. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver, gold jewelry, and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what, uh, what they asked. They plundered the Egyptians on their way out. They did not leave Egypt empty-handed. They had all these possessions and livestock. And those very things should have been and also visible reminders of God's faithfulness to them. Even though they're at this moment so caught up with this water problem that they are having. So you see, God has been faithful. And God has led them to this point. And God has provided for every all of their needs up until this point. But at this moment, the Israelites are, got, are doubting God's faithfulness. But at this moment, they are questioning God's presence. Why? Because of the problem at hand. There's no water to drink. And they feel as if God has abandoned them. God, are you among us or not? God, we're not so sure if we can trust you anymore. We need water to drink. But this is exactly what happens when you're living by sight and not by faith. And this is what living by sight actually looks like. You completely forget all the things that God has been doing in your life because you get so caught up with the problem that is in front of you that you fail to remember God's faithfulness the work that God has been doing in, in your life up until this point because you get so fixated on what is in front of you. You fail to see the big picture of what God is doing in your life and where he is taking you because you get so caught up with what is in front of you. And this is what living by sight looks like. But we're called to live by faith, right? But do you know, do you know what happened to the Israelites? You know, Israelites, they let this one incident, lack of water, and their interpretation of this experience completely changed their view of who God is to the point that they completely forgot all the great things that God had done for them up until this point. And now they're bringing a lawsuit against God, putting him on trial for unfaithfulness, for abandoning them. And this is mind-boggling, and, this, and this is ridiculous. But this is what happens when you're living by sight and not by faith. It happened to the Israelites. It could also happen to you and me because we are just like them. You know, there are times when God will take us through the wilderness intentionally. I do believe that Exodus 17 verses 1 through 17 is our story because we are just like these Israelites who grumbled, who complained, who brought a charge against God for abandoning us, for his unfaithfulness. You know, we often find ourselves feeling the same way, especially when things go wrong in our lives. And let's be honest. When things go wrong and when things don't turn out according to our plans, we're quick to put God on trial. When suffering hits us unexpectedly, we put God on trial. 
when we find ourselves facing trials and difficulties and we don't have answers and we can't comprehend why this is happening, we put God on trial. And as we are going through these wilderness moments in our journey of faith, especially in those moments when God feels incredibly distant, far and this far and silent, we put God on trial. When God doesn't answer our prayers, we put him on trial. When we don't get what we want, we put him on trial. I mean, this is our default mode, and this is what we do. We're no better than the Israelites. We're actually just like them. You know, looking back, I've had many, perhaps too many, of these wilderness moments when I put God on trial because of my lack of trust in him. I remember sharing my first sermon here in in early February, and I I share what God has been doing um, in my life and in Shine's life as he has led us through this intense uh, season of pain and suffering for the, for the past five plus years. And in case you're wondering, I wanted to give a, a brief update as to where we are. So, so as soon as we got to NCF, you know, I was frantically trying to find a doctor who can continue treatment for Shine. And, and we didn't have much choice because um, our, the network of doctors that, that I have access to was pretty limited. Because, because of the, the insurance that we have uh, from church. So I contacted uh, the head of the rheumatology department and explained, this is what my wife has. Is there anyone in your department who can help us? So we set up an appointment for a consult and we show up and we're waiting in, in, in the office for the doctor to come in. And, and I had specifically called uh, to meet with uh, the chief of the division, so I was expecting him to come in, but, but uh, another lady walked in. But this is what happened. As, she, as soon as she walked in, she told Shine, I know you. And we were so confused. And we asked, how do you know us? How do you know her? And then this is what she, she told us. You know, I know that you went to uh, Massachusetts General, you went to Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. And I know that Dr. Stone is, is the one who properly diagnosed you, your illness, your, your immune disorder. Guess what? I happen to be on that team of doctors who diagnosed you. But not only that, I helped Dr. Stone write, um, pub- help, I helped him with the, the publication. And when Shine's case was being um, published in the medical journal, she said, I actually wrote that article with him. So I actually know your condition. I actually know your story. And we couldn't believe it. Like, God, this is crazy. I mean, Really? Like, all these, of all these doctors that, that we could have met, he led us to this doctor uh, in this hospital, in this division, and she happens to be the one who was part of the team who diagnosed China. We couldn't believe it. And right now, China is still asymptomatic, and we're so thankful. And it's been more than three years since her last treatment. But this is the crazy thing. Um, I was pushing the doctor, like, can we please give her an infusion treatment because it's been three years. We need it. She needs it. So she ran tests, blood work, MRIs, and the results came back all positive. I mean, results came back all clean. All clean. I'm sorry. That, that didn't sound good. The results all came back clean, normal, nothing serious. So she was actually making a case where like, James and Shine, I don't have a reasonable cause to treat you. And I was like, are you sure? Because it's been more than three years. She needs treatment. 
So we contacted our doctor in Boston and asked him, can you please take a look at these results? And, and he actually ran another special blood work that only he can do, uh, nowhere else. And then he comes back with us saying, everything's good. You don't need treatment. And I was like, are you sure? Because I think she really needs it. It's been more than three years. And I'm pushing him for treatment. He's like, no, she doesn't need treatment. So that's where we are. I mean, praise God for that, right? But I'll be honest with you, it hasn't been easy. And even, even you know, looking back on the, for the past five plus years of, you know, where we were and what we went through and where we are now, and I'll be honest with you, there are there many moments where I put God on trial. Like, God, how is this fair? I can't see your goodness in what we are going through right now. And when Shine started getting sick as we were dating, I mean, I, I put God on trial. Like, how is this fair? She's been nothing but good to you, but, but why is she going through this? I remember putting him on trial initially. And when we were drowning in medical debt because because she didn't have insurance, she was an international student. I remember when we when we were drowning in more than hundred fifteen thousand dollars in medical debt. I remember putting God on trial, like God, how is this fair? Are you among us or not? Are you gonna get us out of this? I remember when doctors couldn't properly diagnose her condition. We were going from hospital to hospital. Uh, I remember when we were patiently waiting. You know, we we're desperate because because her body was breaking down. She's not getting better. I remember putting God on trial. God, this is not fair. This, you're not being faithful right now. And I remember when Shine lost her sense of smell. And she, by the way, she still hasn't been able to regain her sense of smell. I remember putting God on trial. Like, God, this is, this is not right. This will affect her livelihood. This will affect the way she can be a mom to our future children. Like, how, how, how is this fair? I remember putting God on trial, pointing fingers at him because I was so angry. God, you got this one wrong. Fix it. And as Tim Keller reminds us, worry is not believing God will get it right, but bitterness is believing God got it wrong. And that's what I did. I did that many, many times through the course of this journey that was filled with pain and suffering. And that's what the Israelites are doing at this moment. They're angry at God. They're putting him on trial. Why? Because they believe that God got this one wrong. But as David reminds us in Psalm 23 that, that the Lord is our shepherd, you know, there will, come, there will be times where he will lead us into the green pastures beside still waters, but there will come a time where he will lead us through the valleys. He will lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. And as you face trials, and as you face these wilderness experiences in your journey of faith, and they may come at you unexpectedly, it may feel like you're going through this valley of death. And you may even point fingers at God as you put him on trial saying, are you among us or not? Are you with me? But I assure you, God is there. And there's a reason why he intentionally leads us to the wilderness. Why? God intentionally leads us into the wilderness, number one, for our own good, and number two, for his glory. Why? Because that is where we will encounter God most deeply, 
because that is where we will experience God's grace most intimately. For some of you, this wilderness experience, this wilderness wandering may be short. For some of you, it may be long. But it's all part of God's plan to draw you closer to him, to deepen and strengthen your faith and love in him. And I assure you, he's there with you. And he will never, ever forsake you nor abandon you, even though you may feel as if he has left you. Let's turn to our last point, the Rock of Ages. In this desert courtroom of Massa and Meribah, a charge was presented by the people of Israel against God for abandoning his people, which is mentioned in verses 2 to 3. They're charging, they're bringing a lawsuit against God. Why? Lack of water. You have abandoned us. You have been unfaithful to us. And we see the verdict being rendered in verse 4. They were ready to stone Moses because they believed and, and they were convinced that God was guilty of abandoning them, that God was guilty of covenant unfaithfulness. Verses 5 through 6, we see the sentence being carried out, which is death. Verse 5 and 6, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. You shall strike the rock. I remember during my seminary days, as I was commuting back and forth from New York to Philadelphia, I remember one Sunday evening, we hit absolutely zero traffic. I mean, even to George Washington Bridge, there was no traffic. And as we were, as we were just flying down uh, New Jersey State Turnpike, I was going fast and furious. There's no cars, and it was just like wide open. So I was gunning it. I was doing fast and furious. And, and I remember looking at the clock and looking at my friend, like, we are on a record pace right now. From door to door, we could get from New York to Philly in, in about an hour and a half, and that's pretty good. And I wanted to boast about it. I wanted to tell all my seminary friends about it the following morning. So I was just gunning it, yeah, like, let's go for it. Let's go for it. I want this record. So I'm flying down, and soon I see this car right behind me. And my, my friend was like, he was sitting shocked when he was looking at the rear view mirror, and he was saying, you know, isn't that strange? There's a car right behind us. Why? And we have, there's other lanes wide open. And he's like, oh, that's strange. Why is he tailgating me? <laughs> and then, lo and behold, I see the, the lights, the siren. I get pulled over for a fat speeding ticket. And I remember going to court for it. Um, just to clarify, this is the only time I've been inside a court. <laughs> just, to, just to clarify, I haven't been in and out of court. But this is the only time I've been in a court, and I remember standing before the judge, guilty as charged. I've never been so ashamed <laughs> in my life. Because it, it wasn't just me and the judge. It, like, I had to wait several hours uh, until it was my turn. So as I was being summoned to stand before the judge, it was me, and then they were like, people just watching me as I get grilled by this judge, by judge, right? Like, Mr. Lee, why were you driving this fast? Mr. Lee, where were you going? And, and at the end, I couldn't, what can I say? I was guilty as charged. There's nothing I could say or do to, to prove my innocence, right? I was guilty, and I was the one standing before the judge. 
But in this passage, as we see the sentence being carried out in verses 5 and 6, we see something interesting here. And there are two important prepositions that I want us to, to carefully look at. The first one is, I will stand before you. The second one is, I will stand on the rock. God tells Moses, I will stand before you. Now, in any legal setting, who usually stands before the judge? The criminal, the one who is being charged, right? The guilty one. But God says, I will stand before you. What is going on here? Even though Israel is the one who remained unfaithful in their sinful rebellion, doubting God and questioning his faithfulness to him, right? And they're the ones who deserve death sentence for breaking this covenant relationship. But God says, no, but I will stand before you. So God takes their place. So God receives the charge. God receives the verdict. God receives the sentencing, even though he's not the guilty one. And he also says, I will stand on the rock. Here we see God symbolically identifying himself with the rock. And what does he tell Moses? You know, take with you the staff with which you struck the Nile. And this staff was a symbol of judgment, God's judgment against Pharaoh. And God tells Moses, I will stand on the rock and it will strike the rock. It was a blow of judgment. Now, why is this important? You know, the Bible is filled with many metaphors for God, and rock is one of them. And here we see a clear gospel imagery developing. Let me read you a few verses. First Samuel, first Samuel 2, verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, and, and there is no rock like our God. Psalm 78, verse 35. They remember that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. Psalm 95, one, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Here we see God doing something remarkable. Even though he's not guilty, he receives the punishment. He specifically commands Moses to strike the rock as he identifies himself with the rock. But notice what comes out from the rock. Water. And as a result, people are able to drink and live. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, he did say, I am thirsty. It's one of the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross, right? I am thirsty. And as John 19.34 reminds us, as one of the soldiers pierced him, his side with a spear. What came out? Blood and water. But this is not any kind of water. It is life-sustaining water, life-giving water, life-transforming water. On the cross, this is what he did for us. Jesus, who is the living water himself, became thirsty for sinners like you and me who are just like the Israelites that we would continue to break his heart in our sinful rebellion. The living water himself by taking our place became thirsty for us in order that we may be able to drink deeply from the fountain of life. 
to be sustained so that we may live. Now you see what Jesus is doing for us on the cross. Even in this passage, this points to what Christ will do for sinners like you and me on the cross. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 6 and 11, you know, in these verses, Paul gives us a solemn warning while referring to, while alluding to Israel's wilderness wandering and their sinful rebellion, specifically telling us this is what not to do in your journey of faith as Christians. I'll read from verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. For the people of Israel, the wilderness was a place where they visibly witnessed and tangibly experienced God's faithfulness again and again and again. But at the same time, the wilderness was also a place of judgment for the Israelites. We all know that not everyone was able to enter the promised land. Why? Because of their unbelief and because of their sinful rebellion. Some did perish in the wilderness. And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll be able to see that the people of Israel remained consistently unfaithful to God while God remains consistently faithful to these people who continue to grumble against God and raise sinful rebellion against him. But then see, we are just like these Israelites. You know, none of us deserve to enter the promised land. None of us deserve to be in the presence of God in heaven for all eternity, basking in his glory and splendor and worshiping him in his presence, standing before him face to face. None of us deserve that. But through this passage, but God reminds us, just as he has remained faithful to his people, that I know you will continue to break my heart and remain unfaithful, that you will continue to grumble your way through your journey of faith. And you will remain unfaithful over and over again. But, but, I will remain faithful to you. And I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. If you look at Luke chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus spoke of his departure, which will take place in Jerusalem. What is Jesus talking about here? What departure? Where is he going? But if you look at the word departure in Greek, it actually means exodus. Just as we see Moses leading the first exodus, leading God's people to the promised land in the Old Testament, we have Christ, who is the rock of our salvation, who is our good shepherd. We have Christ leading the second exodus in the New Testament. 
Where are we going? Well, the promised land, heaven. And he's the one who is leading us. The author of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 3 that Jesus is the greater Moses. And he will not fail. And praise God that he is the one leading the second exodus. And we are just merely passing through. This is not, this world is not our home. And as you continue, as you continue to journey in this life, and in your journey of faith, and as you face many wilderness experiences that make you doubt and question God's goodness, faithfulness, and presence, you will have many, many moments of sinful rebellion where you, where you point fingers at God and say, God, are you among us or not? Have you abandoned me? And you're going to continue to put him on trial because of what is happening in your life. But get this. During the second exodus in our journey of faith, we may remain unfaithful to him, but God will surely remain faithful to us until the end. And as I've said before, There will be times where God will intentionally take you into the wilderness for your own good and for his glory because that is where we will encounter God most deeply because that is where we will experience God's grace most intimately. And sometimes as you are going through these wilderness experiences, as Pastor Tony Evans reminds us, sometimes God lets you hit rock bottom so that you will discover that he's the rock at the bottom. Sometimes he does this for you in his mercy and grace because, quite frankly, there's no other way that you'll get this. Unless you go through a season of pain and suffering and in your own version of this wilderness wandering. Do you know what the worst case scenario, worst case future scenario is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ? Let me read you a quote from Pastor Scott Sauls. For every believer, the worst case future scenario is resurrection and everlasting life in Jesus. Yes, in the end, that's as bad as it can possibly get for us in Jesus. But what about now? What about the in-between time, these broken, never predictable, wild, sorrow-filled, out-of-our-control, afflicted, fallen days in which we live? These are the days that bear hopeful glimpses and shadows of the world to come, but there are also the days that are, as Job the sufferer reminds us, numbered and hard. As long as, we, as long as we are living on this side of heaven, in this broken world, we will continue to face our own wilderness wanderings, experiences, moments that make us doubt God's goodness and question his faithfulness in our lives. And this is why Our gaze must always be not on where we are in our present circumstances, but our gaze must be on where we are going. And we must always remember that Christ, who is the rock of our salvation, who is leading this second exodus, is the one who will get us there safely. It was grace that found us, and it it will also be grace that will lead us home, heavenward. You know, as my family, we were getting ready for church this morning, Maya was excited 
because now Maya gets that when we go to church, this is a place where we come to worship God with other people, but this is also a place where, where she comes to meet people she likes. Right now, she's going through uh, a phase where she's just obsessed with um, Jean and John's boy, Ingi. So she's uh, obsessed with Ingi. And so she was excited this morning. You know, we, we dressed her up, and we've been telling her, God, like Maya, we're going to go to church today, worship God, and, and you get to see Ingi. And then she's like so happy, looking forward to it. And then she got distracted. She picked up a toy. It was an old toy, and the sticker was like falling off. And so she was like playing with it, trying to put it back, and then she made it worse, so it fell off. And then came screaming and crying, you know, telling us to fix it. We couldn't fix it because we couldn't put it back. It was just so old. So we're trying to divert her attention, but, but she got so fixated on the problem that, that she, she was like yelling and crying and telling us, fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it. So I started talking to her, trying to calm her down. It's like, Maya, we're going to church today, right? And guess what? You're going to see Ingi. So I kept telling her, like, Ingi, 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 we're going to see Ingi. We're going to church today, right? This is where we're going, and this is where you're going to meet Ingi. And then we, I said it until she got it, and she finally got it. She calmed down. And then we came here. I think oftentimes we have a lot of these similar moments where we forget where we're going. We forget who is leading us, especially in those moments of weakness and, and when we feel as if God is not for us or with us those moments that make us want to question God's goodness and faithfulness, right? And we will continue to have these moments. And this is why we need to constantly remind ourselves of where we are going, where we are headed, that this world is not our home. We are just passing through. That God is the one who's leading the second exodus, and he will get us there. And if you are in Christ, you will not be left behind. And I think it's really important for us to pray and ask God to grant us a childlike faith, a childlike faith in him. In this passage, we see Israelites being childish, and there's a big difference between childish and childlike. We're called to be childlike, putting our trust in him who is a living hope. So no matter what comes our way, that we will not doubt, that we will not question, but we will gladly and joyfully submit our lives under his lordship and his sovereign control. Trusting that whatever comes our way, even though we may not understand, we may not even have all the answers, but we will trust and say, Lord, I know that you are with me. Thank you for leading me. And thank you that one day you will take me all the way heavenward. I think we really need to pray and ask God to help us to open the eyes of our hearts so that we will be able to see more clearly the work of his hands in our lives so that we will not end up looking like the Israelites, putting him on trial. (laughs) Or rather, instead of asking, God, are you among us, that we will be able to, in faith, confess from the bottom of our hearts, God, thank you that you are Emmanuel, God, with us. That even at this moment, I don't have answers, and I can't comprehend, but I still trust because you are the rock of my salvation, and you are the one who is leading me in this second exodus. We're just like Israelites. We don't deserve to enter the promised land. But 
praise God for the finished work of the cross. And because of it, everything has changed once and for all. God will never forsake us nor abandon us along the way. But I pray that as you continue in your journey of faith, in this second exodus, heavenward, especially when those difficult moments come, that instead of doubting God, instead of questioning Him, that you ask God to help you and grant you a childlike faith so that no matter what comes your way, you will learn to trust, that you will learn to obey, that you will learn to, to walk with him through all the ups and downs, praising God. And let's ask God to help us so that we will not grumble our way <laughs> through this life, complaining, but rather let's count our blessings. Instead of looking for the things that we don't have, but let's ask God to help us so that we will learn to see what we have already been given in Christ, forgiveness of sins, our adoption as God's beloved sons and daughters. Now we're part of a kingdom that is coming that cannot be shaken, and God is the one who is going to take us there, and there's nothing that's going to change that. Nothing's going to get in the way of that. The Israelites, they thought lack of water was going to get in the way of, of God leading them to the wilderness. Now sometimes that's how we tend to respond. There's one thing that happens in our lives and, and we feel as if God is not faithful and that God, is not, God won't be able to finish the work that he has begun in our lives. He will finish and he will take us there. Let's pray.